Zechariah 13.9 says, And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Proverbs 17.3 says, The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests hearts. And in Job 23.10, Job says, But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. We're in the book of First Peter, and suffering is a theme in this book. And what we're going to find today in this passage, it's a similar passage to uh, the last sermon that I preached, but we're going to find that we are to celebrate our suffering. It's a hard word, uh, but it's a good word, and it's from Scripture, and God loves us and wants the best for us, and so I want us to hear this with an open mind. We're going to be in chapter 4, verses 12 through 19 today, and here's what Peter writes. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. There's several main points that Peter teaches us through this passage, and the first is that we're to expect suffering, we need to choose to rejoice in it. Peter's used this term beloved before, it's a term of endearment, it's being loved. Peter expresses his care and concern pastorally for the people that he's writing to, and reminds them that they are also loved by God. In fact, this word is how God refers to Jesus, his son. In Matthew 3.17, God speaks and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This kind of love that God the Father has for God the Son is the same kind of love that God has for his people. So if you've placed your faith in Christ, you are one of those beloved. It's only possible because of what Christ has done. We celebrated Easter last week, and and so from Good Friday to Easter, that entire weekend demonstrates God's love for us because of Christ's work. Right, He has opened up an opportunity for us to be in relationship with God. It's only through Christ's suffering that that could happen. Right? Christ endured the worst so that we could experience the best. To be that loved is incredibly humbling and should be encouraging to us. Here's where the hard part of the passage comes in though is that we have a privilege to be able to suffer with Christ. 
Peter says that this should not be a surprise. This should be relatively normal. It isn't a strange thing. And it's just inescapable in scripture that, that God ordains, allows suffering in our lives, especially when we study First Peter. And for what purpose? Again, I think most of us spend our lives trying to avoid suffering. I get that. It's not like we want to run towards suffering and suffer needlessly. But there's good that comes out of it. Peter is talking about a fiery trial, a test, so to speak. Now, Peter's used this language before. Actually, in, in the first chapter of 1 Peter, this is what he writes in verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This refining fire, right, to, to produce gold. Or what Peter says, something that's more valuable than gold. Faith. Genuine faith. And what the fire does is it, it burns away impurities and reveals a pure in this case, silver and gold, right? The essence of what you're after. The bare essentials. It's a good thing, even though it is not comfortable. What God is after is our holiness and our faith and our trust. So again, Peter says, Instead of being surprised by this suffering, rejoice. Take joy in it and glorify God. To share in Christ's sufferings is in some ways to share in his glory or to be able to know that we will rejoice when he is glorified as well. And this term share is, um, is the verb of the of the Greek noun koinonia, which is uh, usually translated fellowship. Right? When we think of fellowship, we probably think food. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> and, and there's so much to that because you sit around in a good meal and you're not just experiencing food. You're experiencing company. You're experiencing each other. And there are so many things that we can, that we can share in the Christian faith, in the Christian family. We can share in the blessings of, of food and laughter and joy and experiences and difficulty. Difficulty. Who are the people closest to you? Right, The people that you've either spent the most time with or the people that you've suffered with. We can go week after week saying, hello, how are you doing? How was your week? Good, fine. See you next week. We can do years of that, but you spend 
You spend a moment suffering with someone, sitting with them, crying with them. And there's a bond there. I think Peter is latching on to that, that bond when he says that if we share in the sufferings with Christ, we are in fellowship with him. And we can rejoice. We can rejoice because we know we'll be rewarded in the future when God's glory, when Christ's glory is revealed, we get to share in that as well. And we get to be closer to him today with that fellowship, with that koinonia. And so Peter tells us, expect suffering and rejoice in it. He's also going to tell us to suffer as a believer, not a sinner. Here's what we mean by that. Peter writes, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and glory, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. This is again fairly familiar territory in the book of First Peter. He reminds us that if we're insulted for the name of Christ, we are blessed. Blessed. Um, one, one great scholar pointed out that the, the word form of if um, tends to point to when. Again, this is something that we should be expecting. And as difficult as it is, or it may be, to face rejection because of our faith, or insults because of our faith, or being reviled because of our faith, we can rejoice. And in some ways, and I want to say this very carefully, but in some ways, I think what Peter is getting at is that those insults and faith through that is actually a proof that the Spirit of God rests upon you. A proof. Right? The Spirit indwells every believer. Um, but it, it seems like Peter is referring to some kind of special resting of the Spirit upon the one who is being insulted for Christ. And it kind of reminds me of the Old Testament where... Uh, when the Spirit is talked about, it, it's often in terms of coming upon someone to give them uh, a, a special power for a, a work requiring strength or endurance. Over and over again in, in the Old Testament, you see the Spirit of God coming upon someone and they're able to do something that glorifies God. And in this case, the glorification of God and the blessing that comes to us is enduring the insults and the rejection and the reviling in the name of Christ. But, <laughs> but we need to understand something. As, as I look at that, as I understand the world, I think there are several reasons for suffering. Uh, one is that there's sin in the world, just in general. 
Our world is groaning under the weight of sin. And so we have things like disease because there's just sin in a broken world. The other reason people suffer is other people's sin. Right? Anyone who's been abused understands this. Right? We have countries that are starving because leadership is corrupt. People suffer because of other people's sin. There's also suffering because of our own sin. Right? If we're suffering in jail because we robbed a store, that's brought upon by ourselves. And then this last category, which actually kind of fits under number two, because it is really dealing with somebody else's sin against a believer, but it seems to be in a category kind of on its own. And that is suffering because someone is a Christian. Persecution, in other words. And Peter is really addressing number four, And he's saying, don't you dare be number three. All right, that is not persecution. Consequences for our own sin, consequences for our own foolishness and our own actions is not not the same thing and not what Peter is talking about. Now, of course, in all of these situations, we have an opportunity to be refined. Again, whether this, is, whether this is Satan attacking or God testing, in some ways they're, they're kind of two sides of the same coin for the one who is suffering. And what we, can, what we can do in those cases is to be reflective of our own lives and see if there is anything that we are holding on to that we need to let go, to see if there is any sin in us to be refined. Speaking of coins... I'm going to put a few here in a solution. We'll get back to these later. Kind of dirty. But Peter, Peter focuses on suffering as a Christian, and that being a means to purify us down to the essential nature of life and a confirmation of our faith. He says, if anyone suffers, again, as a Christian... Interestingly enough, that began as kind of a a derogatory comment uh, when Christian was first used. It means little Christ. Um, But the name stuck. Because honestly, it should be a pretty good description of a Jesus follower. To be a little Christ. It It is the goal of a Christian to be more like Jesus Christ in every way even through fellowship with him in suffering. As I was reading this, I I also wondered whether Peter was trying to combat or counter a type of theology that survives today. We might know it as health and wealth gospel or a prosperity gospel. This, This idea that if you're a Christian... Right, then, then God is on your side and that you should be able to claim great wealth and good health and if your life isn't awesome, then it's probably your fault for not having enough faith. 
Right? That's not true, by the way. <laughs> so let me just make, be clear about that. But I, but I wonder, I wonder, even today or 2,000 years ago, if someone was experiencing suffering, would they be tempted to wonder, oh, wait, is it me? Do I just not have enough faith? Should I be ashamed at enduring the suffering? Because that's not the way it's supposed to be. But Peter assures us that's not the point. This is supposed to be, and there are some good things that can come out of it. So when we suffer, for his sake, we're not supposed to be ashamed. And this is coming from a man who knows shame. Right, Peter, on the night that Jesus was arrested, what did he do? He denied knowing Jesus three times. Why? Avoiding suffering. I mean, how else could you explain it? Right, he did what he thought he needed to do to avoid suffering. So he knows real shame, and God is gracious. And Peter changed, and his heart was changed, and he was able to pen these words. And ultimately, as the story goes, he was even crucified upside down for Christ. So Peter, Peter has reminded us to expect suffering and to rejoice in it. To suffer for being a Christian, to suffer for doing good, so to speak, not for our own sin. And now he's going to encourage us with what the future holds for those who suffer versus those who may be doling out the suffering. In verse 17, he writes, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? I think one of the points that we can take from this is that judgment for the believer is now. For the unbeliever, it is later. I think there may be an element of of corporate judgment versus personal judgment as as Peter refers to this household of God. Right? That's the church. And the church needs to be purified. Right? It is a representation of God here on earth. That's the format that God decided to change the world with. The church, people who follow Jesus. It's not meant as a social club or a status symbol. And it doesn't represent God well if it's filled with impurities. And here's the truth about this. Suffering is a very effective way to weed people out who are not believers and just want to be seen as Christian for whatever the reason. Right? To appeal to voters, to legitimize themselves as a moral person, but that's not 
the point of the church. The point of the church is to bring life and good news to the world. Now, on a personal level, Peter seems to be saying this, that that even though the refining fire of suffering is difficult, you're getting it out of the way now rather than for all eternity. Believers are being refined during this lifetime through suffering. And as in Proverbs, we notice that that it's not always true that those who trust God and believe in him always have great things come upon them in this life. But in eternity, unbelievers will be judged by their works. Believers will be judged by Christ's work. It's a huge difference. Huge difference. And that's the beauty of the gospel, the good news. It's the beauty of salvation. Peter quotes uh, Proverbs 11.31 here. This, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? I think as we read through scripture, we need to remember there, there really are, are kind of three different salvations that happen. Uh, there's the salvation that occurs when a person believes in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? Their identity is changed, they're a new creation, they're saved, they have a future. Past that point, there is an ongoing salvation. The, the fancy word for it would be sanctification, being made more holy, more like Christ all the time in the things that we go through in this life. And then there is, of course, the final salvation for all of eternity spent with God in heaven. And it seems like what Peter's referring to is this sanctification process, right? The, the salvation that's being worked out in this life. Now, the word scarcely, it comes across a little bit odd in this passage. Um, and it, it helped me a little bit to understand that, that it can also be translated with great difficulty, Maybe it seems like a distinction without a difference, but, but let, me, let me explain. I think that could have a couple of, of meanings, uh, both of which are biblical concepts, that, that the salvation with difficulty uh, can certainly apply to Christ's work. Right? In other words, believers weren't, weren't close at all. Right? We're all in the same boat. We're all far from God because of our sin. Believers weren't close and we just needed a little bump from Christ to get us into heaven. That's not the way it works. Christ's work was incredibly difficult. There was no one else who could accomplish it. Period. It took the work of Jesus, again, with no help from any of us, to accomplish salvation for the believer. So if that's what it took for the believer to be saved, there is no hope outside of Christ's work, period. 
I think the other way, I think the other way to understand this is that the difficulty of the sanctification, the difficulty of the salvation of the believer through this life, through suffering, is nothing compared with the difficulty those who reject Christ will face in eternity. Again, the message is the same. (laughs) Run towards Jesus. So here's what we have so far. Expect suffering and rejoice in it. Suffer as a believer, not as a sinner. And judgments now for the believer and later for the unbeliever. And the final point that Peter's going to make for us is to encourage us to entrust our soul to God in suffering. Verse 19 ends this passage, and he writes, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their soul to a faithful creator while doing good. Again, it's unavoidable that God allows, ordains us to suffer, and that it's for his goodwill and our good. We can either fight this or we can lean into it. We can complain about it or we can rejoice. We can keep asking for God to remove suffering or we can ask God to grow us through it. We can keep holding on to things that God wants to burn or we can hold loosely the things that will not last. When Jesus was dying on the cross, he prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That word commit is the same as the word entrust here. So we have Jesus Christ entrusting or committing his spirit to God the Father and he's asking us to do the same because of who he is. Right? The question would be, do we? Do we entrust God with our souls? Most of us have trust issues. That may be for good reason. Right, Most, if not all of us, have entrusted something valuable to someone else. Kids, maybe it's a toy that you entrusted to a friend and they broke it. Right, maybe, it's, maybe you entrusted money to an investor and they lost it. Maybe you entrusted your heart to someone and they broke it. We all have those experiences But Peter's clear. People will let us down. But God won't. Why? Because he's a faithful creator. We need to trust our souls to God. Because he's honestly the only one who knows what it's really supposed to look like. I think many times we have this idea of what our soul is supposed to look like and there's extra stuff, right? So there's, there's this idea of what God wants our soul to look like and maybe a particular political viewpoint, right? Our soul is supposed to look like this and some things that I don't really want to give up. Or another way to think about this is in terms of layers. Right? If we if we have 
our soul, right? Faith, the essence of our being in relationship with God. And we start adding all sorts of other layers around that, thinking God is going to protect those. That's not biblical. It just isn't. I can't find it anywhere in Scripture. But often we tend to assume that, don't we? Or maybe I could, I'll just speak for myself. I tend to assume that. That God will protect my soul and my body. God will protect my soul and my wealth. Another layer. God will protect my soul and my work and my relationships and my comfort. Layer after layer after layer. And I tend to think the more I have, the better off I am. And yet, God's economy does not work that way. In fact, often the less we have, the better off we are because we don't have those layers. We don't have as much of those impurities that seep into our lives and that we hold on to so closely. The less attached to anything we are, again, outside of our essential being in relationship with God, outside of our soul, the better. And so, if the layers need to go, if they need to be burned up, so be it. Now, put some pennies in here. I don't know if you've ever done this, cleaned up some little pennies here. They look a little bit better. And I did this uh, actually to show how inadequate an analogy this is. Because these pennies are cleaned up on the outside. They used to look dirty. Now they look cleaner. But it's kind of just the outside. Friends, we're involved in something that is that is much bigger than just cleaning up the outside. Right, the refining process of metals. And that's why I think, I think Peter uses this, and it's all, it's all throughout Scripture, this refining process. It's essentially different than just cleaning up the outside of something. In the heat of the forge, in the heat of the fire... Right? What is essential is separated out from everything else. The impurities, the sin that permeates us is separated out as dross that gets scooped off the top. And it gets down to the bare essentials, which is faith. I've heard the saying, if you want to see what's in a person, bump them and see what spills out. I think in some ways this passage is more like if you want to see what a person is, put them through fire and see what's left. This is meant as encouragement. I know it's, I know it's, a, it's a serious passage. There's not a lot of joking or anything else, but... I, but it's meant as encouragement. It was meant as encouragement 2,000 years ago. It's meant as encouragement today. And I hope that we will take 
from it that encouragement. What, what is encouragement? To give courage. So that when we experience suffering, for the right reasons, we can rejoice in it. And we can be glad of the work that God is doing in us and through us and know that we will be able to glorify God. So reframing suffering as an opportunity changes our posture. Right? Rather than fighting against it, we embrace it. Rather than holding on to things we can't take with us, we hold them loosely. And celebrate our suffering with a faith forged in fire, so to speak.